Hello and welcome to the end of year Club Carmera Martial Arts Podcast. My name is Jamie Club, and my intention with this final show of 2018 is to finish answering the questions I started in the previous episode. If you enjoy the material, please check out my website, clubchimera.com. Please be sure to check out the show's show notes and hang on for a few items at the end of this show, including my thoughts on a New Year tradition and special announcements on next year's material and training opportunities. If you're partying hard this New Year's Eve, stay safe, and I hope you enjoy this show. First up, I'm humbled by a question brought to me by Ron Goyne of Practical Urban Martial Arts. You will have heard me quote Ron previously. He was part of my inspiration for the Order of St. Guinefor podcast, and I quote him in my Clash of the Forearms video series. Ron is a regular source of information for me. I highly recommend you check out his blog. He's a real hidden gem and unsung hero in the martial arts subculture that was years ahead of his time. Here's his question. Stephen Pinker, in his book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, suggests that violence, in general, is declining. Is martial arts training, especially for self-protection, still valid? Should one continue investing time, energy and money into an endeavour that may likely never be utilised in a real-world situation? This is a great question. If you listen to my interview with Ian Abernethy on his podcast, you'll see both of us touching upon the futility of spending so much time focused on training for real-world violence when there is a low likelihood for most martial artists to face the serious threat of violence in their lifetime. In fact, I know people who live in some of the most dangerous parts of the world and have never once been involved in a real hand-to-hand combat situation. Back in the mid-2000s, when I was questioning various martial arts teachers who promoted realistic and practical training, I was fortunate enough to include Carl Tanswell of the Straight Blast in Manchester in my list of interviewees. Carl, who had switched from a strong emphasis on reality-based self-defence teaching to more sport-orientated work, remarked how amused he was with people obsessing over the importance to train life-preserving skills and yet pay little attention to their own personal health or went for important medical checkups. Have a look at the statistics of causes of death in most countries and you'll see that violence from another individual is comparatively low. However, does this mean that self-protection training is unnecessary? Not at all. Carl gave this response to me and also discussed it with students after he had taught a self-defence seminar addressing a very serious type of assault an attack from a person using an edged weapon. Likewise, Ron Goyne has taught and progressed more in the education of realistic and pragmatic combatives than I could ever hope to achieve. Like Carl, he very much knows his stuff. Ron and Carl are arguing for proportion in face of probability. Despite the low risk of drowning, most of us see swimming as an important part of a child's safety education. Despite the likelihood of having to give CPR to another person is also quite low, and furthermore the chances of it working are also shockingly low, the practice remains a firm fixture in first aid courses. Interpersonal violence is still a valid threat at different levels. Children, unlike adults, are more likely to encounter some form of mid-level violence. They face that reality through their interaction with fellow school pupils. Despite the fact that those living in the developed world are generally living in safer times, the UK, my home country, has seen a sudden rise in knife crime in recent times. In addition to this, our homicide rate in London is the highest it's been in 10 years. With this in mind, I think self-protection training should act as a gateway to training in the martial arts, just as learning to swim to prevent drowning can be seen as a gateway into learning to swim for exercise, sport and leisure. However, as I have discussed in my previous talk on Ian's show and on my Protecting the Frontline show, self-protection should be a self-contained course that can be revisited at suitable periods. This gives the training perspective 
and ensures it doesn't become warped by rational fears and paranoia inspired by an unrealistic view of the risk of being assaulted. Before I leave this question, I would like to briefly touch on Ron's source. I was first drawn to the work of Stephen Pinker when I read Dan Gardner's The Science of Fear, now retitled as Risk, the Science and Politics of Fear. I wrote a review for Gardner's book back several years ago, and it can be found in the review section of the Club Chimera website. I think Pinker puts forward some compelling arguments. Both he and Gardner offer data that provide a welcome counterbalance to the nihilism and paranoia that pervades some sectors of the reality-based self-defence community, as well as a minority of their siege-thinking cousins in the survivalist community. However, wishful thinking and optimism do not automatically equate to reality. Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, is not without its criticism. Indeed, many members of the scientific community have called into question Pinker's arguments that humans have gradually evolved into a more peaceful race. It is quite hard to dispute both Pinker and Gardner's argument that street violence in Europe and the USA was worse in previous centuries in the developed world than it is today, but history shows us how quickly that can change. Statisticians and analysts have contended that Pinker has cherry-picked a lot of his data to support his long peace theory. Anthropologists have contended that civilization have actually shown a marked increase of violence in many cases rather than a decrease. I would add that recreational crimes, from nuisance offences through to serial killing, appear to correlate with the progression of industrialization. Over the 20th century, despite the increase in police technology, solitary predators kept breaking murder records, eventually peaking in the 1990s. The consensus of opinion, it seems, amongst Pinker's critics, is that the evidence coming forward is that people haven't evolved to become less violent. They have, to quote skeptic Rebecca Watson, collected in larger populations that protect most of the people from the horrors of war. I've put links in my show notes for relevant sources. However, in short, Pinker's work is good, but flawed. Whereas the overall argument for realistic proportion made by Ron Goyne is one that all self-defence teachers should take on board. My next question comes from another regular contributor to the Club Chimera page, Taekwondo teacher Ole Korf. I've had some really interesting discussions with Ole. He appears to be working hard to progress martial arts, often against quite a lot of opposition. He's a true critical thinker in the martial arts world, and it's always a pleasure to hear from him. Ole asks, how can we incorporate the soft skills of self-defense into more physical drills? How can the stuff that is often paid lip service to be made more graspable? Ole highlights a good point here. There are plenty of ways to teach the theory of soft skills and I believe it is important that students of self-protection have a formal understanding of this area. For example, there are awareness tests that can be watched on video. Understanding the chemical cocktail that is behind our fight, flight or freeze impulse along with all the associated behaviour characteristics is also helpful to make someone more detached and mindful when they feel fear. Pre-instant indicators, or PINs, are also important information for reading a potential predator, as well as a comprehension of the anatomy of situational awareness. We can use videos, demonstrations, diagrams, and a variety of other tools to articulate all these areas. However, as useful as all of these parts are, they all miss the tangibility of physical training. This might seem like a rather strange paradox, but often one of the best ways to derive an intangible quality is to push someone to their physical extreme. So, for example, I believe attitude is the most important non-physical trait an individual can learn in self-protection. Without the right attitude, everything else is useless. Attitude as a conscious decision is not easy to teach. 
However, without it, the student will not commit themselves to the material in a meaningful way. There is no specific drill in this case, but the teacher needs to get the student to attach a high level of importance to committing to the material. I'm not a fan of rousing emotion in a student when they are facing hard physical challenges. Here, I'd rather they adopt a more detached attitude and focus on the job in hand. This makes them less mentally vulnerable. Nevertheless, when they make the decision to train, it is very helpful to have in mind why the training is important. Are you training to protect a loved one? Are you training because you want to return home to loved ones? Are you training because a lot of people rely on you to be fit, well and healthy? Maybe your reasoning is spiritual. Maybe it's a patriotic or perhaps it's a tribute to those who have worked hard to get you to this stage in your life. A good teacher will help their students attach a very high level of importance to their training that can be relied upon when boredom, laziness and various other excuses make their way into a student's mind between sessions. I digress. We need regular sessions that push individuals to their physical limits. I do not believe every training session should be a beasting session, but once every two to four weeks we need what Moti calls a red flag day. This day should carry a lot of weight. It's a day you work your attitude. This is the day where you train the attitude of never give in. It can be any type of training session, but I advise it to be cardio based and as combative as possible in nature. If you are a teacher who is holding these sessions, it's important that the students understand both before and afterwards why they are doing them. The best versions of these attitude tests dispense with conventions such as timers and they also play a lot of mind games on the individuals participating. This tests and trains internal resilience. Simply getting students to regularly demonstrate certain activities and coaching is a really good tool for building attitude. It teaches students to take control of situations better and to think more about what is going on rather than to just passively take on instructions. This type of commitment to the exercises helps build the sort of character more likely to take charge of a counter-assault. Role play is an obvious way to help students maintain personal distance in conflict management training. These activities should not result in any form of fighting, but be focused purely on keeping up boundaries and not being drawn forward or allowing someone into your personal space. It is important to train this against deception as well as aggression. As I previously discussed in my Protecting the Frontline podcast, I've known students who happily embraced the physical part of the situation but found it very hard to assertively draw attention to a person approaching them with a weapon. My predator versus prey game pits a small number of students or teachers wearing full face headguards against the majority of a class. The predators, those who wear the headguards, then mingle amongst the class. These predators might have tactics and strategies. However, they are instructed to attack when they feel their prey is the least expecting it. The prey is given a limited amount of time to fight off and or escape from their predator before they have to sit out of the activity. The headguards, it is explained, symbolise the pre-incident indicators. We know from numerous case studies and witness testimony that the early signs of a physical assault are usually detected long in advance of the actual attack. Social conditioning and various other factors often persuade humans to override these feelings alerted to them through their observation. We notice peculiar and out-of-context behaviour in a predator. It might be their behaviour or mannerisms and it might be the way they are dressed, for example wearing clothing that is out of context with the weather and could be used to conceal a weapon. Regardless of students wearing these very clear indicators of their role, if the predators wait long enough they will catch plenty of prey that are off guard once the presence of the mingling headguards has been normalised. Again, much like the attitude training, this activity should be discussed after each activity. The predators can relay important information on what influenced their choice to pick a certain target. This activity teaches how to defeat victim selection and to maintain awareness. Al Kane taught me a great exercise for highlighting sensory exclusion and tunnel vision in particular. He taught this in London during my time teaching for Motique's hard target system 
The exercise involves constantly striking two focus mitts in front of them, whilst two individuals stand within the striker's peripheral vision holding their own focus mitts. The striker should normally be able to make them out when he begins the exercise. As the striking progresses, these individuals raise their mitts at different times. If the striker sees the pad, he hits it. Another individual counts how many times the striker spots and hits the target from out of his peripheral vision. The post-fight is often neglected in training. Students need to train for the double tap where another incident occurs after the initial threat is neutralised. This can be done by putting in an unscheduled pressure or reaction test immediately after a high-intensity activity. Moving on to Ole's next question, I recently reposted a video up on the Club Chimera Facebook page that apparently shows an act of non-physical violence. Ole also asked if I could maybe talk a bit about this video and the fence in general in my podcast. To add a bit more background to this question for listeners to this podcast, the video in question appears to be a genuine incident recorded on someone's phone. Vice Online Magazine confirms its origin to come from a Twitter user called A Peace Spy Guy and other online papers have also reported it as a story. Of course, the caveat here is that the incident could be staged. However, in the absence of any evidence to the contrary, and the genuine look of the footage, I'm willing to give a piece-by-guy the current benefit of the doubt. Nevertheless, always be sceptical. The video begins with two men standing on a pavement by a street road arguing with one another. Then one of the men sticks his middle finger up in the face of the other man. In America, they call this gesture flipping the bird. In man-watching, Desmond Morris subcategorizes this insult as deliberately malicious in his category of obscene signals. He considers it to be one of the most ancient of the phallic signs. It isn't a direct threat, which is usually represented in gestures that symbolize violence such as shaking one's fist, but a show of dominance. Phallic gestures that are deliberately malicious, according to Morris, are asserting a type of sexual dominance. By doing this, they are saying that their enemy poses no threat to them, that they are beneath them. I have seen male and female monkeys asserting authority over one another by enacting a mounting behaviour that isn't sexual, merely done to show the other monkey that they are boss. Anyway, back to the video. The first guy starts to back away holding the gesture as he begins to cross the street. The other man responds with his own middle finger gesture and begins to follow. The two men keep throwing up the same gesture at each other with a lot of vigour in between the pouncing traffic on the busy street. Eventually, they're both on opposite sides of the street, but keep making the same gesture at each other as if to get the last metaphorical word in the argument. Given the increased distance between the two men, the altercation presumably never became a physical exchange. However, it appears that both men believe that the sign that they're giving has at least as much impact as a punch in the face. But the sign they are trying to empower, or are granting a ridiculously disproportionate sense of worth in the eyes of most viewers, translates as a show of, you don't frighten me. No, you don't frighten me. I said, you don't frighten me. You get the silly picture. If we are to take the video at face value, what seems so absurd to the viewer is the level of importance both the two men place in their offensive gestures. Their use of the middle finger sign is almost a form of displacement behaviour, replacing violence. Perhaps if we are to believe the video to be genuine, the two men are experiencing inner conflict about fighting. They do not wish to fight, and yet their anger makes them feel they need to fight. This has become the way the two men have agreed to communicate their violence. Both men appear to be competing with these gestures, using them as if they would have a visible impact on their enemy. The scene made me think of witches or warlocks using magical signs to cast curses on one another or to ward off evil. It appears that both men know each other. I'm guessing they know each other quite well. 
they could be related, and this might not be the first time they've traded these gestures. Perhaps it has evolved as the way these two men fight against each other rather than actually trading blows. You'll note that the gesture does not change, but both men seem to believe that the individual using it with the most frequency and intensity will have the most impact. Vice magazine even wrote a jokey article scoring each user as if they were in a boxing match. The entire incident is unusual and an extreme example of the lengths human beings can go to in order to convey their anger towards one another without resorting to violence. Other animals do this too. Territorial cats will circle one another for ages, mainly trading hisses, spits and aggressive grimaces. If anything does happen, it's usually a very fast flourish of action before they spit again and run off as they resume their threatening behaviour. I've witnessed many human confrontations clearly showing that neither side wants to actually fight, but they feel some sort of societal or tribal motivation to put on the display. There is the long-range trading of threats. Often the further away the individuals, the more dramatic the gesticulations become, and there is a ridiculously close-range pre-fight, non-fight ritual. This latter one comes in the form of something I call chest bumping. Unless the individuals are engaging in a hitherto unknown art of nipple wrestling, I'm unfamiliar of the merits of this form of fighting. Being that close to your enemy and not actually fighting is a clear display that neither party wishes to fight physically. Their performance is purely to save face. There are various other threat behaviours that appear to be more territorial. Ballooning describes the actions a human might use to increase their size and ward off an enemy. This includes standing tall, puffing out their chest and splaying their arms. Jeff Thompson describes a pacing action that he believes is used to stimulate the fear of being stalked by a predator in the mind of an enemy. These are tactics that are described in his book Dead or Alive and are worth observing for two reasons. Firstly, we can understand their purpose in others. They set a boundary line and at least we know that the physical side can be avoided, that the person using these behaviours is merely warning their enemy. Secondly, they might be consciously used as a non-physical deterrent. There are other non-physical aggressive cues which are comparable with other mammals, particularly our fellow primates. However, they are a subject for another day. The fence, as described in Branko's question to me, is a conscious tactic adopted to set up boundaries. The method is not new. John Anderson believes it's been around since prehistoric dates. There are references to an interview technique described in 20th century courses for the FBI and personal security personnel alike. Jeff gave it the name The Fence and describes it a lot in his self-protection material. Al Peasland, one of Jeff's instructors, expanded on it in his book Fence Concepts, and Mo Teague has introduced variations on ways to set up boundary lines and preemptive strikes. From Mo, we have things like the invisible fence and the coiled fence, etc. I also cover it a lot in both of my cross-training documentaries. The main takeaway from this discussion with regards to the fence is the setting and understanding of boundaries. This is all about creating and maintaining space in order to put the person using the fence in control of the situation, granting them more options. If there's enough space and no projectile weaponry or firearms are being used, then it's unlikely that a fight will occur. The longer nothing occurs whilst the large space is maintained, the less likely it will be for any violence to happen. There are no guarantees, but that is the usual behaviour pattern. Smaller space makes less of a guarantee of something physical not happening, but now the person using the fence is granted an early warning. More importantly, they can use the fence to gauge whether or not their enemy really does intend to get physical. I unashamedly admit I posted the video up for a bit of entertainment at these two guys' expense. However, it also helps illustrate that no matter how aggressive individuals might appear, they don't always choose to get into physical violence. In this instance, we have the rather bizarre hybridization of displacement and display behavior with an obscene insult. Stop press. Insert. Well, some things are too good to be true.
After the video of this middle finger battle went viral and was even picked up without question by certain mainstream news outlets, the creator of the scene, a one Guy Lelock, the director of Jerry Media, has come clean. The entire scene was staged. It's a lesson to us all. As I said earlier on, always be sceptical. End of insert. Understanding certain human behaviours is an important part of pre-fight training. Many people come to me asking for self-defence lessons based on an incident that has made them feel vulnerable. I've had adults and children train with me because they have been physically attacked, but in most cases it's more the fear of a physical assault, or rather the fear of losing a fight, that has driven them to my door. Subsequently, having learnt about instinctive pre-fight rituals and various types of aggressive display behaviour, as well as the concept of the fence, a few of these clients were able to report back to me that they felt a lot more in control during situations where others had tried to intimidate them. One child, who had become the target for bullies at a new school, had since stood up to his persecutors and recognised the signals that betrayed their ringleader's intentions not to fight. Let me know if you'd like me to further expand upon the principles and specific tactics of the fence in a future episode. There's plenty to reflect upon with regards to my observations of various animals I've grown up around during my life living in a zoo-type environment, as well as the variations taught to me by experts in the field of teaching the fence. Finally, we come to my lovely cousin, Karen Chipperfield. Karen is a Taekwondo instructor from Puma. When I was asking if anyone had any questions for the show, Karen said, I've got one that's asked at Puma Gradings. Who inspires you? I think this is part of the show where I'm supposed to say Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, Winston Churchill, and then reel off a list of Oscar speech style thank yous. Well, in truth, I find this to be quite a complex subject. I find icons fascinating. My book collection is richer not so much for the autobiographies it contains, but the biographies that seek to humanise their famous subjects. However, these people remain strangers to me, no matter what I read about them. I respect them more as people when I discover their flaws, because it's not very healthy to idolise anyone, much less someone you don't know on a personal basis. As human beings, they do not inspire me. Their work is another matter. I am inspired by a vast range of material and continue to be inspired by more all the time, just as I am inspired by different experiences. However, ultimately that inspiration feels like it comes from within and is not a direct inspiration. It is my reaction that was probably fired up by something else in my personal history that is encouraging me. There are certain family members that inspire me and I have friends who do as well. They have supported, encouraged and humoured me at different times. If that does not light the fire in someone's mind, I do not know what will. I have a big affection for my teachers. Several of them definitely had a deep impact on my desire to become a writer and several of them inspired me to become a better martial artist. Anyone who gave up some of their life to educate me in a meaningful way has my respect and I feel a happy obligation towards them to do the best I can do with my own work. I'm also inspired by the people I teach. Enthusiasm for knowledge and a willingness to learn is a great motivator. Given that I have known teachers who valued my interest in their subject so highly that they went well beyond the call of duty, I feel a responsibility to live by that example with those who wish to learn from me. Students further encourage me to improve more. Their mistakes can flag up errors in my own teaching, and their input has often helped me change certain methodology. This year's traditional New Year thought is the most obvious one. Resolutions. I'm probably quite late here when I say that I'm sick of the concept of New Year's resolutions. Does this mean that I won't be promoting and advertising my teaching services, promoting the fitness side in January? No, of course not. Any hook that works is fine with me. However, I will say the same thing to a new client that I will say to you guys when it comes to resolutions. Don't do them. What I mean is, don't wait until New Year. 
Don't give yourself a date. Work towards adopting a behaviour straight away. Probably the most common New Year's resolution is the diet. Dieting usually does not work and it doesn't work for the same reason that most resolutions do not stick. Many martial arts traditions, old and new, have linked themselves to certain diets. A few have even invented their own, but they usually carry little scientific basis. Don't buy into dieting nonsense. Train smarter, train harder and eat sensibly. It is really that simple. Avoid mindless munching, reduce sweets and fried foods, increase your intake of root vegetables. I recommend Matt Fitzgerald's Diet Cults for more on this subject. Whatever you wish to change in your life, start making the steps immediately and understand that repeated failing is acceptable provided you keep on going. That's about it from my self-help advice. There's plenty I need to change and I'm happy to say I've gradually been heading in the right direction for a while now. It's got a lot better in the past couple of years, but I'm braced for disappointment, outright failures and mistakes. I'm also prepared to change tactics and strategies if required. For example, my Bullshitsu book has been put off for years. I have six volumes in various stages of completion, and I have no other writing projects besides these podcasts and similar shows that are in my way. I want to have these works out as soon as possible, so watch this space to see how I get on. Speaking of projects, to repeat last episode's information, I'm intending to release some bonus podcasts. It might take the form of soundtracks I've produced for videos in their complete form, or they might be interviews. However, they will not be promoted on this show, but they will appear in the feed, so you'll need to be subscribed, or keep your eye on my Twitter and Facebook feeds. Speaking of subscriptions, for the last time this year, I'd like to heartily recommend the work of my fellow martial arts podcasters. When it comes to caring people who put their heart and soul and professionalism into broadcasting audio content, I cannot think of a better group of spoken word teachers of combative culture than this crew. Ian Abernethy, Lee Sims, Gretchen Carson, Chris Wilder, Sensei Ando and T.W. Smith. Let them see the old year out or the new year in for great information and entertainment regardless of your chosen discipline, style or system. I'm again teaching a double seminar in March 2019 at the Blackwater Leisure Centre, Malden, Essex in the UK. The first two hours will be part of my When Parents Aren't Around Children's Self-Protection Programme starting at 11am and the last three hours starting at 1.30pm will be part of my Vagabond Warriors Martial Arts Cross Training Programme. I hope to see some of you there. Please book your tickets through Lee Mullen of Keiru Practical Karate. I'm very honoured to be invited to teach for Lee's Club who has kindly opened its doors to anyone interested in attending. I no longer teach regular classes, so this is an opportunity for those of you who live a bit too far afield to attend my private lessons to experience the Club Chimera martial arts approach. Links are in the show notes to this episode. Thanks again everyone for your support with the show. Please don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube as well as check out the clubchimera.com website. There is new content going up there all the time. It's probably about time I got on Instagram too, so hopefully we'll see you guys there as well. Please send in feedback and like, share and subscribe to support my work. Next episode, the first official episode of the year, is entitled The Way of the White Moth. Thanks for listening and Happy New Year.